actually come at this from a fundraising strategy perspective, not a, you know, what color are my napkins or a, you know, sense of how you build energy in a physical room. I really actually come at it from this lens of what is the strategy here? What's the story we're telling? What is the vehicle for giving? Why does that matter? How does that connect to our overall organization? How does that roll up into our strategic plan? From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Ariel Glassman. She's a purpose-driven fundraising consultant that focuses in on customizing fundraising strategies, helping develop fundraising plans, build systematic and intentional donor engagement processes and programs, defining staff needs and structural development, but also building and refining infrastructure on how you think and manage your fundraising. During our conversation, we talk about the pivot between traditional fundraising strategies to more responsive fundraising strategies and how you can lead your team through that. We talk specifically about the latest trends in event fundraising and how as events move from offline to online, you can't just repackage them, but rather reimagine how that experience or what you're delivering in that moment can be delivered in new ways within the constraints of virtual. We also talk about how virtual engagement, like an event, is really just one point on a larger donor cultivation plan. There's a lot of great nuggets in here, so let's dive into our conversation with Ariel. Ariel, now you work with nonprofits and help them kind of think about their fundraising and work alongside them to really help craft strategies that help them grow giving and increase their impact. But what I'm always fascinated by is like how people get to this. Like, because I know you didn't wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I'm going to be a fundraiser. Like, you know, that's my thing. So what was your squiggle to get to like this moment now? And tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do and how you serve nonprofits. Sure. Um, So, yeah, I think my journey into the nonprofit sector is a little bit um, atypical in that I think a lot of people come to fundraising in the nonprofit sector as um, a second phase of their career or they transition over after trying something else. Um, Not me. This is what I have done since before I graduated college. You know, I'm a lifelong fundraiser. And that's just been my passion. Like I'm obsessed and it's, it's something I think I will always do. And now as a consultant, the way I do that work has shifted a little bit, but I have really never done anything else, you know, professionally. In fact, I had a friend who used to say I was the terminator of fundraising, you know, it's all she does. Um, And I'm proud of that. Um, And I think that there are people in this sector, you know, the value of coming over from other sectors and bringing learning in from there is really, really high. But I also think there's a value in, you know, people kind of growing their skill sets within the sector and really, you know, coming to a place as a consultant grounded in, I have been in the trenches, I have done the work, I've been that, you know, single shop development director, Um, I've been that development assistant, I think really gives me a perspective that allows me to connect with all the people I work with in a way that I think is harder if you come into this laterally from a more leadership level position So yeah, that's a little bit about how I got in. Um, And I really specialize in fundraising strategy in terms of how organizations position themselves to their community, where you're at um, in terms of the ecosystem and the mission space that you serve and how you relate to other organizations and how to really leverage that and communicate what that is to your donors. And I really do specialize in sort of really grassroots fundraising. 
digital fundraising, you know, I also came up in the time when direct mail was still a thing. P.S. It's still a thing. Um, but I really work in that way that allows organizations to extend their hands out into the world and bring people to the table as donors who might not otherwise be invited or who don't yet have a seat at the table. I really like working um, with the grassroots and bringing in people who want to be part of it, even if it's a $5 part of it. So you were actually like born into fundraising. So my whole intro for you was like deeply incorrect. Like you did wake up being a fundraiser. <laughs> Almost. Actually, what really happened is I copied my big sister. Um, oh. It sort of runs in the family. Yeah, she um, she's a couple years older than me and she had a job in development. And I moved back to Boston after graduating from college and was looking for my first job. I'd had an internship in nonprofit already. And, you know, she said, well, you know, I know this organization that has a development assistant job open. And I said, okay, cool, I'll apply. Now, really, I was approaching it from the perspective of I was a political science major, and this was an international relations organization. And I was like, whoa, they don't know what's coming. Like, I'll get my foot in the door with this development job, whatever that is. Um, And then they'll be like, oh, we can't say no to her. She obviously should be on the program team. And I would, you know, kind of find my way into that work that way. And then really when I discovered what development was, because I talked my way into that job, I fell in love. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was sort of an accident, but also sort of not. Um, and in reality, I really credit my sister with um, knowing me so well to understand how I might really enjoy that work. And she's still in that world too. So it's great. That's awesome. It's like a family bond, right? So yeah. <laughs> what, what's interesting is how you went, you like were trying to use fun development as your door into program development and then you stuck it out in fund development i don't think that's very common like you you talked about how you love fundraising but like why like what what is it about fundraising that you love so in my mind fundraising is an inherently optimistic act right and what i love about it is that the best fundraising is actually an invitation to people you know to donors to step into the best version of themselves, right? Giving is about identity. It's about values matches. And so when you're fundraising, you're really saying, hey, person who cares about this thing, I'm going to give you a chance to step into an action space around that thing that you care about. And it's really about helping people, you know, I think really become their own vision of their inner best self when you give them the ability to take action on something that matters to them. So that's really why I love it. And I also just, there's an art and a science to it. It's such a diverse field in terms of the skills and um, types of intelligence and that you need in order to succeed. I mean, it really depends. Obviously a major gift officer's skill set is really different from somebody who is really into digital media, but it, it requires a lot of you. And the other thing I really like about it, especially as a consultant, when I get to work with so many organizations is that it really makes you become an expert on the thing you're fundraising on. So when I start working with a client, I feel compelled immediately to sort of become a mini expert on whatever it is that they do as an organization. I might already be familiar with it. I might not. Um, And I'm the kind of person who gets bored easily. And I always need to be on a steep part of a learning curve somewhere in my professional life to really stay engaged. And fundraising has allowed me to really wander through all these different mission spaces and really learn and benefit from that without having to commit to any one of them. And it's just, it's so perfectly wired for how I learn and who I am and, you know, what keeps me happy in the job. Yeah. And and I think that's, it. your explanation was like quite beautiful in some ways, because I think that is what we do. And I think when we 
equate fundraising to convincing or trying to manipulate or beg, you know, some of these like standard things I think people think about when they start thinking about, oh, you're asking for money. Like, I don't like asking for money, you know, or they think about this like caricature that's like standing outside of a store saying, oh, will you support the children or will you support the hungry? And that's not what fundraising is. And you didn't, I'm not even going to try to repeat it because you did such a beautiful (laughs) job at kind of explaining like what you're really doing is connecting supporters to a story and being a conduit and a facilitator of that union. And that's really, really beautiful. Um, I like to think of it even, I like to think of it even as matchmaking to a certain degree um, between an organization and a person with a passion. So fundraising is like running a dating app. That's what you're saying. Oh God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) that would be a heck of a uh, an app though like it's like uh more of like a tinder style app for like donors and causes where they're like hmm do i like that no swipe to the right actually actually, something like that something like that kind of exists i can't remember the name off the top of my head but i remember there being a product put out into the world that was very much sort of like a swipe left swipe right equivalent Um, Now, what I think would really be useful would be a dating app for people within the nonprofit sector, because you already know that that person understands your crazy commitment to your mission-driven job, (laughs) as opposed to being like, why do you work so hard and why do you love it? Um, Which is sort of a fundamental understanding, uh, I think, that really helps. (laughs) Absolutely. But we're already digressing, so we need to circle back. And, And I know you mentioned this before, but as part of your consulting, you really have to get familiar with the cause. And I, and I love that tidbit that you mentioned, because I think that is some of the challenges that comes come with supporting nonprofits, is if you don't understand really the story, you can't really help connect supporters to that story, or even advise like what mechanisms you might use to do that. Um, and so first and foremost, keeping that at the heart is essential. And the other thing you mentioned was just being uh, conscientious of understanding the mission, understanding the goals and the stories, and then finding the right strategies that that organization should use. And as we know, like a lot of the strategies nonprofits use for fundraising have been upended because of, you know, 2020 and the global pandemic. What are you seeing in the market? Like how are organizations you've worked with or that you're watching made this pivot in how they still connect their supporters to their story in the absence of some of these traditional strategies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Part of it is I think there's a big divide between organizations that really already were facile using digital technology and, you know, doing mobile engagement, doing really good digital media work and email marketing, and those who actually really had to play catch up in this moment because they hadn't quite gotten there yet. And that's actually one of the things that I'm finding as a bright side or sort of a silver lining to this moment. As I said before, I'm, you know, I'm an optimist and I see fundraising as a very optimistic act. Um, This moment is really forcing nonprofits who have not yet been able to get into the game of digital fundraising to do so. And I think it's actually teaching a lot of organizations that it's a lot less scary than they thought it was. And that being put in this position to being forced to embrace it has helped a lot of organizations, particularly small to mid-sized nonprofits, grow up really fast overnight in terms of how they approach this. So I think that there's sort of a divide there in the sort of, we already know how to do this and the oh, this is scary and we don't really do it very well. And I see organizations having a really different journey through this time based on that, um, if that yeah. makes um, if that makes sense. 
No, absolutely. And I know when I was doing research before our conversation, one of the traditional fundraising kind of avenues that you lean in on and really help organizations with is event fundraising. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of organizations that have made the pivot to digital and maybe kind of had a more uh, uh, natural processing to kind of convert their fundraising in the midst of uh, this moment. But those organizations that were over-indexed on events, man, that this is a rough time for them in that making that pivot. And so I'm curious... Uh, how you've seen organizations do that and, 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 and kind of where are the pitfalls that are so common for organizations to run into as they're trying to move offline to online? Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, technology platforms are number one. You know, online fundraising is one of the best possible examples of the idea that it takes investment and money to make money. And I think that those who can sort of get behind the notion of bringing new tools on board, investigating new systems, things that can help replicate what usually happens at events or in-person interactions that we just don't have the option of right now. So I see sort of fundamental technology choices as a really big part of that. You know, I am really excited to see organizations using video and particularly mobile video in new ways. And there's a couple great, you know, technology tools out there that are relatively new to the market that I think make scaling a very personalized video experience accessible to even small and mid-sized nonprofits. So I think, you know, part of it is understanding how are you going to steward and cultivate digitally and virtually? It's not just about how you ask. And I think sometimes folks get a little over-focused on how are we going to find a digital way to ask when in reality, it's how do we find a digital way to engage? How do we find a way to keep people connected through these various technology platforms? Because if we do that right, it's not going to matter how we ask, right? That's the journey that we need to take people on is so much more than that ask moment. And I think over-focusing on that can be detrimental. Yeah, 100%. And I think it goes back to like asking the right questions, And I think through this transformation that nonprofits are being forced to go through, where like we're in this moment where before and now are quite different and we can't take what's worked before and shove it into now and expect it to work. Yep. And so I do think the questions that I'm hearing, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think one of the key examples of that is virtual events, um, which is obviously a huge trend now um, in that it looks a little bit like the the way you plan a, a sort of in standard in-person event. But in reality, I actually see it as really a hybrid of the way you plan an event and the way you plan a digital campaign. And really, there's this culminating celebration at the end. But we're being really asked to schmush together two concepts that usually aren't schmushed which is how do you create a time-based, urgent way to tell your story, get people on board, get them excited, um, but not have the ability to be in the room with them at your fingertips. Um, And I think we're seeing the evolution of a new type of fundraising that um, really asks us to have these kind of skill sets and these strategies collide in new ways. And I think even figuring out how to do fundraising strategy in the context of a virtual event um, is something people are really having to get with the program on. Absolutely. And I think that goes into what I was mentioning about asking the wrong questions is because the question I keep hearing is how do you move your, you know, and we're, and we're six months into this and we're still asking the same questions. It's like, how do we move our offline events online? And in some ways, what I'm hearing you say is like, that's the wrong question. It's like, how, and not how do we move this online? Because I think that's what we did when the internet, 
you know, and digital came onto board. It was like, hey, we do all this direct mail stuff. We do billboards. We do TV ads. Like, how do we put this on the internet? Instead of really capitalizing on what the unique constraints that the internet provided um, could offer. And I feel like that's what you're saying with virtual events. So what is the right way to approach this? What are some tips, maybe two or three that you're seeing as people are not not moving events online, but they're actually crafting something brand new, like virtual experiences. Yes, they really are. They truly, truly are. And I think the way that we, you know, we're so new at this. There's no such thing as a best practice in virtual events yet. And anybody who says so is selling something. Um, we're in a hugely experimental time. I will say that as I've gone through, I think I've been part of nine or 10 of them at this point, that there are some things about it that are fundamentally very similar to actual in-person event fundraising. For example, most of these events are succeeding because in the background, there's donor relationship work being done. Somebody's got to secure the big matching gift that's going to make the paddle raise that happens virtually even more successful. Somebody's got to be talking to the donors to, you know, pre-plant gifts and, you know, raise money before the event. So we know how to set a goal that we can crush and, you know, really capitalize on the optics of success in that way. Um, and I think those are all things that you see uh, well-run organizations do around their own events that also apply here. And I also think that potentially there's another thing that feels similar, which is an event doesn't stop when the event is over. And really the value of in-person fundraising events, I think it's underrated in terms of long-term roles those or those types of events can play in your fundraising program. Um, and I think people, I want people to look at virtual events the same way. It's not just a moment and yay, all of a sudden you have this money. It's how do I take the new donors that I got from having a virtual event that allowed me to attract people who never come to our in-person event? How do I take them on a journey from there? How do I get that second gift, right? Because we know there's a lot of evidence that while the first gift is often the hardest to get, the second is the most important. So how do you build strategies that allow you to capitalize on your virtual event that might help you beef up your monthly giving program down the road, or really set you up to succeed with those donors on Giving Tuesday or in your end of year campaign. Um, those are places where nonprofits miss the boat on how they leverage in-person events. And I see some of them missing the boat in a virtual context too. And I think it's so important to look at it from that long-term perspective. Yeah, and I think you hit on like a pet peeve I have about events and talking to event <laughs> fundraisers is that like, is the kind of the over-focus on the event as the end goal. Like, or that the 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 activity of the event, the night of, or the countdown to is like the purpose of the thing. And what I'm hearing you saying, which is what I would agree with, is that the event is a moment in time in a bigger donor journey that someone is hopefully going to go on, like go on with you and your organization that builds deeper connection and confidence over time. And I think where I've heard people discount events, which you alluded to as well, is when they don't think about events in that way. So I guess as you're advising organizations to think about their virtual events or creating these virtual virtual experiences as part of their donor cultivation or stewardship programs, how do they make sure it's like an integrated experience and it isn't just like, oh, we did this cool thing and now we're moving on to something else and now we're going to launch this campaign? How is, how is it part of a larger conversation? What can nonprofits do? 
Well, I think for one thing, part of it is how you integrate the new shift to a virtual event into your overall development plan. Like, I think pretty much most organizations took their development plans in March 2020 and threw them out the window because everything had changed. And that actually was an opportunity to sort of recalibrate the donor journey to include something like that. Um, I think it's really great that these kind of events can pr- actually produce evergreen video content segments that can be reused really effectively um, down the line with different audiences or give you something to refer back to with these donors when you're stewarding them later, right? As we all heard so-and-so say at our virtual gala last fall, X, Y, and Z is so important, right? You can kind of continue a through line of that narrative farther out. Um, and for that reason, you know, we want these virtual event programs to be really reflective of who the organization is. Like this is not, you know, a time to show a really super different side of what you're doing um, as an organization. This is the time to use this platform to get in front of new people and reinforce the heck out of what you really do and who you really are as an organization. And, you know, one other thing I think organizations can do to succeed at virtual events is to make sure that they're really not just stuck in the hands of an event planner. And I say that in part because the dirty secret I bring to the table around virtual events is I'm not an event planner. You know, over my career as a staffer, I planned lots of events, sure, but they're always part of a broader, you know, I was the development director or I was the, you know, associate and we were supporting a lot of different fundraising strategies. I actually come at this from a fundraising strategy perspective, not a you know, what color are my napkins or a, you know, sense of how you build energy in a physical room. I really actually come at it from this lens of what is the strategy here? What's the story we're telling? What is the vehicle for giving? Why does that matter? How does that connect to our overall organization? How does that roll up into our strategic plan? How does that roll up into the shifts we're making because of COVID? And how do we tell that story? Uh, I think that you've got to look at it from a comprehensive perspective, like executive directors need to be involved in these new efforts. Development directors need to be involved, even if you've got an event producer. This is really more than that. It's much, much more holistic. And so I think making sure the team is involved and it's not just like, oh, that's the event person's job um, is really, really critical. Yeah, and I appreciate the emphasis on integrating this into the overall stewardship and engagement plan because I do feel as though that's the greatest opportunity with any activities, whether it's a virtual experience or a physical event, you know, once we're able to kind of facilitate that more or a Zoom meeting with a donor versus an in-person coffee. Like there's so many different activities we do, but still at the end of the day, we're trying to facilitate one conversation over a period of time through a multiple of avenues to deepen that connection and build confidence, which ultimately leads to increased giving and increased engagement. Like it's just the proof of the matter. And so I appreciate that emphasis. Um, I know we're almost out of time, but I would really like to give you an opportunity to kind of leave our listeners with some like practical and pragmatic like advice as they think about the rest of 2020 and then even look beyond to 2021 and what what's what's to hold like there's not much encouragement as far as like where we're at you know we feel like we've <laughs> kind of been in this holding pattern but one thing i know we here at virtuous are talking a lot about is that we can't wait your mission can't wait your supporters don't want to wait and change needs to happen now and that's both external Uh, through many of the social movements that are calling for action across a variety of issues or just in the fact that like your mission was important before COVID. And so it's probably important now. And so we need to take action. What's one thing you would encourage nonprofit leaders to keep top of mind as they push forward from here? Yeah. um, I mean, there's um, a lot of things I would urge them to keep top of mind. 
But one thing I would really urge everyone to think about is something I observed very early in the time of COVID and the different successes of organizations who were really decisive versus those who who kind of wavered or lingered and ended up, as you said, really losing out on opportunity because they kind of didn't know what to do. Now, we're in a time when, again, really nobody knows exactly what to do, but the organizations I saw who gathered their leadership and were decisive and they based it on their values as an organization, what they were going to do and how they were going to continue their fundraising, those are the, the organizations that are really succeeding. And especially early on, we're really, really succeeding. Um, so I don't want people to feel like the fact that we're in unknown territory means you shouldn't make a decision or that there's no decision to make. We're going to have to trust our instincts to a certain degree and our data, on the other hand, to inform how we might move forward on these pieces. The other piece of advice I would give is don't think you're alone in this. One of the most successful things I've been part of over the past six months was actually a consortium campaign online between four different nonprofits in a very specific sector who normally would have seen each other as competition for the same donor dollars. And in reality, one of their executive directors had a really brilliant idea to approach three other organizations and say, I think we're stronger together. We're all getting dealt the same hand with COVID right now. And we all have unique strengths in terms of fundraising. You know, some of them had great corporate relationships. Some of them had an amazing group of really well-cultivated online individual donors. And they sort of did a Voltron and became you know, a, a, a consortium and a collaborative group of fundraising. And everybody raised more than they would have if they hadn't done that. And I encourage us to think past the competition, because this is the kind of environment where people feel like there's so much competition for donor dollars, you know, and that things can get ugly between organizations when that happens. And I really want people to take the leap of faith. And it really is a leap um, to take that risk to be vulnerable organizationally, come together with other organizations and, you know, with a great MOU that lines up exactly who gets what in terms of the money raised you can build something way bigger than yourself that's really inspiring. And I could see that happening in so many different sectors, in so many different communities. And I just don't think we're all on our own in this. And I think to think that is a mistake. Absolutely. And so I think the two pieces of advice was be decisive and really take action now because your mission, your supporters, you know, they can't wait. They really depend on you to take action now and be decisive about it. But then the latter point about just knowing that this moment requires us to come together. And, and it goes back to something I've repeated many times on this podcast is that like we're in the hope building business and that we're like if your mission was important before COVID, your mission's important now. But it's still the mission that's important, not whether you or the other person that's working on your mission get the funding to make it happen. And so the idea of coming together in this moment to take action now collectively is extremely important. And I'm so thankful for your heed uh, of that uh, direction. So thank you so much for your time, Ariel. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack 
just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast.